Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I've got some good news and some bad news. I'm going to start with the good news, though, and you're really going to like this. You sure you shouldn't get the bad news out of the way? No, 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 no. I'm going to give you, okay. give you a good first and then we'll, we'll dig in. Okay. So this is a headline I saw in the Doncaster Free Press. Yes. Ready for this? Yes. Doncaster MP Ed Miliband named as one of Britain's sexiest politicians in new survey. There's the good news. Isn't that great? That is great news. You you are the, um, we'll come on to the, the chart in a minute, but you're the sixth most sexy male politician in the country. So a great achievement. I mean, that's not bad. Sixth is not bad. The, the bad news is it was a survey of adulterers. And that's bad news because... <laughs> It was it was one of these sort of marketing surveys for illicitencounters.com. I'm not encouraging adultery, but why do adulterers have... You're suggesting that the judgment of adulterers is bad. Is that right? Well, let's flip it. Are you suggesting you're, you're very happy to be lusted after by adulterers? Because I guess there's more chance of it developing into something. No, no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> um... Uh, well, look, you know, I don't know what I don't quite know what to say. Um, well, do, you, do you want to hear where you? So um, yeah, go on. Give me the give me the top. Give, give me it's a bit. We want a bit of Alan Freeman here. So at number one with twenty six percent of the vote. Yeah, yeah. Rishi Sunak, Dishi Rishi. Yeah, interesting. Unsurprising. Um, interesting. Uh, there's there's been a bit of that around, hasn't there this year? Uh, number number two is Tobias Elwood. Uh, interesting. Are you familiar with him? Yes, I am. When you're in the same room as him, can you smell the pheromones? Do you find yourself... <laughs> I, I'm not going to go there, honestly. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on each of these, just so you know. I just want to make that clear before we get to any more of them. Well, we, we have... You can comment on this one, because maybe maybe you can curry favour here. Your, your boss, Keir Starmer, is at oh, totally, three. totally understandable, yeah. At number four, the, the muscle man, Dominic Raab, mm. with 13% of the vote. Mm. So you're saying I'm behind Dominic Raab, yep. Uh, well, go, and go. Uh, and at number five uh, is James Cleverly. He just pips you. You have 6% of the vote. James Cleverly has 7% of the vote. Well, I mean, I'm in largely good company then. I mean, I, I will be honest with you. Go on. Don't be too honest. Technically, you're at number seven because um, Other got 9%. I mean, you really are. <laughs> I'd preferred you to give me the bad news first, really. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I know you're a competitive man. Uh, are you now thinking when Adulterers Monthly or whatever it is publish their chart next year, I'd, I'd like to see a marked improvement. I'd like to rise higher than six. Do you want to go for the top spot? What, what's your... What if I, well, I mean, there's a whole range of questions prompted by that question, which is, you know, one of which is, well, I'm not quite sure how I curry favour with the electorate in this case. <laughs> 
Well, I went on. Um, I went on. I went on um, Maxim Magazine's website. I googled how to be a more sexy man, and they they have twenty ways to be a more attractive man according to science. Number one was grow a beard. I did that five years ago. But maybe it needs to make a comeback. Maybe. Was it Shaggy? I, I don't remember. Look, I think I'm happy with number six. I'm happy with number six, and I think I'll sort of quit. Well, I think I'll withd- now withdraw myself from future competitions and be sort of number happy. two is wear sunglasses. These seems like very easy. seem like very easy things to achieve, Ed. Mm. Um, have an entourage is at number five. Um, researchers from the University of California at San Diego say hanging out with a group of friends can bump you up a few attractiveness points. I know somebody who used to be a professional entourage. Um, he got used to get paid for being in an entourage. Was it Ed Balls being in Gordon Brown's entourage? It wasn't. It wasn't. It was. I just can't remember who it was. For somebody quite famous. Well, I just wanted to congratulate you on this achievement, and I really look forward to uh, to to uh, seeing next year's list. What's been going on with you? Well, just to add to the sort of push me up the charts here, I did have a slightly odd experience this morning, which is in order to. Um, make sure I can carry on with the cold water swimming once it reopens. I'm t- taking cold showers. Um, and by some slightly odd thing, I was listening to David Runciman's podcast while in the shower. And this is maybe too much information. You, I mean, you are obsessed. And and then it, and with David Runciman, yeah. and then it, and then it, the, 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 the podcast went silent. I didn't really understand. I got out of the shower. And then it seems to have, the phone seems to have called a friend of mine. And to be honest, I'm slightly worried about the noises I might be making while being under this cold shower. <laughs> so, so can you can you can you demonstrate for us the kind of noises you might have been making? And I'll no, tell you. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely can't. I mean, you know, I just don't understand what is the technological reason. I didn't wasn't touching the phone or anything. What is the technological reason why it would have done that? Voice activation. Well, this is what I'm thinking. Is it voice dialing? Is the person who who you ended up calling does their name sound like a yelp or a grunt? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I haven't admitted to them. I mean, maybe I, I, I think I'm going to sort of do a little test. I think they might listen to the podcast occasionally, so I'm just going to test if they then get in touch with me and say, "Yeah, I, I just, I'm hoping they will dismiss it as a pocket dial." Does their name sound like Runciman? Were you shouting out, "Oh, Runciman"? I was not shouting Runciman in the Run- shower. No, <laughs> I just want to be absolutely, I just want to be absolutely clear about this. Just on the matter of my exercise, I thought you'd be interested to know mm. that I think I. I kind of did a humble brag last week about my personal best. Anyway, I've smashed my personal best again. 23.52 for five kilometres, which I think is pretty good. What is it? What is going on with you? I don't know. I'm obviously becoming superhuman. I'm I'm telling you, keep it up like this and you'll definitely leapfrog Dominic Raab on next year's list. I'd like to see the two of you go man-o-man. In what... In like what? wrestling. Oh, I mean, you're, you're, you're at the peak behave, of your physical powers. Behave Stripped yourself. to the waist, oiled Be- up, you Be- and Dominic Raab. We yourself. all want to see it, Ed. Behave yourself with your ridiculous fantasies. <laughs> should we talk about what... Should we move on swiftly and talk yeah, about what I we're talking about? I think we better had, yeah. Uh, talk about what we're talking about this week. This week we're talking about the role of businesses in society and an idea called B Corp or benefit corporations. For decades, mainstream economics has focused on shareholder primacy, the idea that the main duty of a company is to serve the interests of its shareholders. It was particularly promoted by the economist Milton Friedman in the 1970s and has been a dominant idea in the US and UK ever since. But a new movement of business people has emerged, arguing that companies have a duty not only to their shareholders, but employees, local communities and the environment as well. And a new type of business known as B Corp has also emerged to enshrine these duties alongside the traditional goal of making a profit. There are now more than 3,000 of these businesses around the world. And we'll be talking to Paul Lindley, founder of Ella's Kitchen, one of the first certified B Corps in the UK, about why he is a big advocate for this new way of doing business. And then we're talking to academic and researcher Lenore Palladino about the wider problems of shareholder primacy and what to do about it. And then for our cheerful person this week, we are adding to our collection of QI elves. I'm delighted to say we're joined by QI elf Anne Miller, who's going to be talking about a fantastic new book, which will, you know, will make an excellent Christmas present, I'm sure. It's called Funny You Should Ask. What's your reason to be cheerful? My son... Yes. Has has shown a slight interest in Star Wars. Now, 
it's only very slight at this point, but he was asking about lightsabers and then got a pencil and asked if we could have a lightsaber fight with pencils. And as a kid, I I was obsessed. It was over 50% of what I was thinking about at any given time. So I'm really hoping that is going to be passed on and I will be able to, you know, enjoy it the second time round with him. But I've just got to be careful not to push it. I mean, it is quite exciting. We made a big error, which is that one of our kids did a sort of, he was in a school play, like a dance thing at the school play. And then, and then we were playing some music at home and he started doing dancing and we started going on and on about how he had a natural talent for dance. And the one thing he is now absolutely sort of resisting doing is, is being involved in, any kind of dance it's like we sort of we kind of messed up really you can't force it it's very surprising information that one of your sons is, is good at dancing it's extremely surprising they didn't get it from me i think it's fair to say uh, what's your reason to be cheerful my reason to be cheerful i'm really quite excited about this and i've been excited about it since it happened to me a week ago thinking it was going to be my reason to be cheerful and it would <laughs> excite you particularly so i was walking through the park not swimming and not doing my personal best running and suddenly um, a dog came bounding up to me and started leaping onto me. But it's not any old dog. It's this dog, Dylan, who we have dog sat like two or three times. But I think this is a kind of remarkable thing because, A, there were a lot of people. I think it was, I think it was last Saturday. So there were lots of people walking through the park. Dylan was some distance away from me and found me and and jumped up and and I've checked with the uh, with the ownership as they say and it wasn't like Dylan just jumps up on every person he jumped up on me that's so great for your self esteem it really good for my self esteem but i suppose then the thing that's really intrigued me is it is apparently it can't be sight he apparently isn't he's not very he's quite myopic um, I don't know whether myopic is the right description of a dog, but he, he hasn't got very good eyesight. So, so presumably he must have smelt me from some distance away. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Famously, I think. What do you mean, Dylan? Famously, or just generally? Well, generally, dogs are known for their sense of smell, aren't they? You've heard of sniffer dogs. So is that what happens? He's well, I've heard of sniffer dogs. Yes. So he just sniffed me from age from a long way away. Did I think he? it's either that. Or he got the scent of your imaginary dog Chutney, who we haven't heard a lot of recently. Well, I, I don't, I didn't want to, I don't want to make Chutney feel bad about. You've it. not had Chutney sent away to live on a farm, have you? No, no, no. Chutney's still being well cared for. But I mean, I would like to know from listeners, or maybe it's a QI question, which is, you know, from what distance can a dog smell you? If I was a mile away, he wouldn't be able to smell me. If I'm five hundred yards away, is it three hundred yards, a hundred yards? You love the imperial system, don't you? <laughs> yeah, Celsius, <laughs> centigrade. Uh, um, uh, but what d- answers on a postcard, don't you think? You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to start by talking to the founder of one of the UK's first certified B Corps. Uh, he's, he's the founder of Ella's Kitchen. So I was already starstruck because this man is single-handedly responsible for getting vegetables in inside of my son um and then we've just found out something perhaps even more exciting uh, paul lindley from ella's kitchen hello hi there jeff well as as we were preparing to talk on the zoom i noticed uh, a, a blanket on the chair b- behind you and i asked you about it can you, can you tell me the story the blanket is full of big bird and elmo and grover the the the, the muppets from sesame street and I've got it because I am privileged enough to sit on their board in the US. Um, and I was just making you laugh by explaining that uh, I'm one of the few people that can admit to uh, working with a bunch of muffins <laughs> every week. <laughs> and, and are your board meetings sort of brought to you by the letter B and the number three? <laughs> <laughs> yes. When we get to finance, the count brings the numbers in. Um, but, but in honesty, I know what we're going to talk about um, business being a force for good and stuff today, but, but Sesame Workshop, the business, has the best mission statement I've ever seen for a company. In fact, it should be the mission statement for human beings, I think. It is to help, the, to help kids grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Oh, fantastic. That's pretty good. Well, for people who perhaps don't have children or haven't had children in in recent years, can you tell us um, about Ella's Kitchen and and how you came to set it up? 
Sure, yeah. So, um, so Alice Kitchen is now the biggest baby food business um, in the UK and in a number of countries around the world. But it's it's heart of where it came from, like all great ideas, I guess, came from lived experience. And from my professional side of my life, I was working at Nickelodeon Television, his TV channel, where I could see that the kids, each generation was getting less healthy. Television was being blamed um, for either kids watching bad ads or not doing exercise. And we were trying to, to counter that. But we, I was constantly aware that kids' health was getting poorer year on year. At the same time, and in my personal life, I was having my first child, Ella, um, and she was great as a baby, but she stopped eating things at about six, seven, eight, nine months uh, old. And I used what I'm just best at, I guess, which is silliness and mess and games and making a fool of myself to make a laugh, pop a spoon in her mouth, and everyone was happy. And it sort of made me realize that if you can make food fun for kids, they'll they'll eat it. And if you can make it healthy for parents, they'll want to give it to their, their kids. And then uh, having seen that there's a problem in society through the, my professional life, I saw this solution here. Someone should create a, a food business that um, is fun for kids, that kind of brings the kids out of, of the parent during weaning. And, and Ella's was born. So it started with a, a mission. I'm a massive believer in you know, getting people behind a mission. That's what drives a business. That's the purpose of a business. And its mission was to help kids live better lives through having a better relationship with food. Its turnover grew every single year for the first seven years, doubled. Um, It's been profitable from the beginning. And I put all of that down to the fact that it's built on this mission that everyone involved can understand, get behind, see how their job relates to, and get the satisfaction of delivering something that's more than profits, although it was profitable from the very beginning. Well, let's talk about... um... B Corp then. In 2016, you became a certified B Corp. Um, and, and we're sort of at the beginning of our conversation on this. So if you could tell us what that is and right. why it was important to you. Right. Well, I would say it's the single most proudest thing that has happened to Ella's Kitchen. It happened in 2016 after I'd sold the business. So I, I wouldn't have the trump card to say, this is what we're going to do. But I could use my influence and I could persuade the public company we sold to that um, it, it should be done. Um, so, so B Corps, the B Corp movement works within the current economic system, but is really trying to change the economic system to empower people to use business as a force for good. And what it means is that you can get your company certified as a B Corporation, B Corp we call them. Um, and those businesses meet the highest standard of verified social and environmental performance with public transparency and with legal accountability to be able then to deliver profit and a higher purpose. So they're companies that really set out to redefine what success is in business. They do that, I guess, by holding themselves accountable to what's called a triple bottom line, but they, they measure and they account, they hold themselves accountable for, for their profits and their financial performance, but also their impact on the environment and communities as well. Tell us about how, how this tends not to exist in a regular company setup, that there is something, I guess, ab- about the shareholder model that lends itself to, to, um, to not pursuing yeah. these aims. Everything is interdependent in, uh, in our society, in our economy, and within a business. Society can't exist without an economy that's growing. An economy can't exist with a whole load of Businesses, businesses can't exist without teamwork within those businesses. And ultimately, all of those things I've talked about are, are people. And, and we too often, I think, reframe um, aspects of life in terms of these institutions. But ultimately, it's all just about people. And people are fundamentally good. They fundamentally are decent. We, there aren't business people and people. There, there are people. And those people that do business also vote and are mums and dads and have mothers and fathers and support sports teams and they do normal stuff because they've got ethics and business should operate so that they take those ethics and they take all those things they do in their private life into their business life but we've created this ecosystem of how business operates starting with how it's legally defined from the top that's lost humanity from business as I see it So we've got this reset that we need now because there's plummeting um, confidence and trust in big business. And at the same time, you've got this 
growing inequality when the whole point of business is to create wealth for a society. I came across a, a report by the IPPR um, a couple of years ago that, that showed that between 2010 and 2017, the UK GDP, the UK economy grew by 12% in real terms. Yet real wages fell by 6% over that period. So in that seven or eight years, 18% growth went somewhere, but it didn't go to people in wages. And fundamentally, it sat on big companies' balance sheets, not doing anything, because they weren't investing it. They just sat there. Maybe they paid themselves bonuses, but it didn't go down into society. So the economy has failed us in that time because it's not provided wealth and prosperity for the society, of which the, the, those of us that are outside of business give this social contract to business people that says, you can do certain things, and we expect you to give us something back as a society in return. And that, that isn't balancing at the moment. Yet it is, we've found this way through B Corp certification to have companies that can make financial returns uh, uh, over the long term and, and the short term and do good for society and the environment as well. So what we're hoping is that the B Corp movement and the 450-odd um, businesses in the UK that employ 22,000 people that turn over between them over £4 billion. They're across 40 sectors. We believe that we can take evidence to show to policymakers, to governments, and say, you need to change the system. It's not working for us, and we've got some ideas how it can be changed. So what is the certification process then? What does a business have to do how how stringent is it how do you get around i guess uh, the dangers of a, a business just using as a badge to say we're good guys whilst carrying on as normal I, i'm really interested to to know what a company is saying about itself when it uh, signs up to become a b corp well it's a relatively simple process but it's a very deep process so there's three things that happen first of all there's a b impact assessment so there's this independent uh, accreditor called b labs that um, have set uh, uh, an assessment, about 200 questions that cover right across uh, a company's operation from you know, workers, suppliers, customers, governance, uh, the environment, and you submit them and you've got to get over a benchmark. So you've got to clear that. And it often takes, for existing companies, they've got to take maybe 18 months, 12 months to really finesse the, the way their policies are or the, the actions that they have to be able to get over that. Once you're over that, it, it, there's a simple thing of signing up to a declaration of interdependence, which really recognizes that healthy economies require healthy people and healthy environments, and it's all this interdependent ecosystem. That's, that's an easy bit. But then the final bit is really about changing your articles of association. So you change the constitution of your company. In layman's terms, most companies' standard articles of association, their constitution, say that the point of the company is to maximize shareholder return. It doesn't quite say that, but that's effectively what it says. And B Corps change it to say the point of the company is to optimize stakeholder returns. So it is it's taking away shareholder primacy and saying we are accountable for and we've got responsibilities to the wider stakeholder community that we serve. So our suppliers and our, our, our customers, our employees, their environment, the communities that we work out of. There's big companies like uh, The Guardian, uh, like uh, Innocent Drinks, like Danone, Body Shop, Patagonia. There's a whole load of big companies. Then there's a whole load of small companies that like just you, you surveyors and accountants and lawyers uh, wealth managers, those sort of things. So, um, but all of those companies have done all of that. Just following up on Jeff's uh, question, Paul, how exacting is this process? I mean, w w just to raise one issue, I know, I think I'm right in saying that across the world, there are three and a half thousand B Corps, and I think 90% pay the living wage, but not all of them. Some people might say, well, if they're not paying a living wage, how can they, you know, how come they've got the sort of tick? Just just explain a little yeah. bit about how that works and how you sort of balance out, you know, the different practices of businesses. Yeah. Well, as I say, there's those 200 questions and you can get through by not, you know, having a tick against every one of those questions. You might have some X's. But your mentality of going into this and the public pressure that can be on you because your, your results of the B Corp assessment is public um, – will push you to constantly improve. You're, you're, you reapply to be credited every two years. You're expected to have a better score than the one you had before. Um, 
as you say, 90% of companies will already hit the living wage and those that don't will be aiming to. So it, it's, it, it's impossible to become a B Corp with, and be part of that community without truly believing that your business can constantly improve, one, and two, that it sets itself at this gold standard. And if it can't reach every one of those 200 questions on that gold standard, it will constantly seek to improve. But if a better way, a better way would be to take, you know, these B Corps that are operating in this economic system in a different way to change the economic system, change the rules of the system so that companies can't pay less than the living wage, that they can't do things that harm the environment. That's what that's the ultimately where we're trying to go with the B Corp movement. Well, that takes me very conveniently on to the next question, which is this was set up as a voluntary badge and a voluntary certification system but you and others are now in the vanguard of a movement that wants to change the law so that this doesn't just become an option for companies but it's much more entrenched as if you like the 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 normal way in which public uh, limited companies set up do you want to say something about that changing the economic system is the goal um i think the economic system in this country is built around the Companies Act, which was last uh, reformed in 2006, but that was really just a tweak from um, 1986. 1986, I was at university, I was doing economics and politics then. 1986 was right at the heart of monetarism. It's built around monetarism, which was an economic system started by a guy called Milton Friedman, who convinced those in power that a company should have no social responsibility to the public or to society because its only concern should be to increase profits for itself and its shareholders. And the, the, the idea that, you know, the politicians of the right that, that were in power then took on was, was we're going to grow the economy, that trickle-down economics will work as these shareholders get rich and they spend their money, and that because the economy as a whole is growing, even though it's more unequal, that all boats will rise on that rising tide. And deregulation followed and um, free markets were, were the norm. And, and it was, this is how the, you know, we're never going to have boom and bust again was, the, was the, the mantra. And then you get into the banking crisis, you get into all the problems that we've had and the fact that we've got a more unequal society now than we've ever had before. So what me and, and my allies and, and colleagues um, are, are putting forward is, is that we can change one specific aspect of, that, of the Companies Act, Section 172, which really is the one that defines what the purpose of a company is or what the, what the role of directors are within a company as they manage that. That 172 deals with the director's duty being to promote the success of the company for the benefit of shareholders as a whole and then having regard for a number of other matters. But they're very much secondary. So in law, companies are set up primarily for their shareholders. And we believe that doesn't bring the best economics because the companies won't make the most money. And it certainly doesn't make the best for society. So we'd like to change that to, to equalize the, the responsibilities that directors have to, um, to, to their shareholders with the other stakeholders, be that the environment, um, or, or communities and our society more general. And Paul, the crucial question then is how much, or a crucial question is, how much difference would that make? Because people like you want to do the right thing. And then there are people who maybe, you know, and I think the vast majority of businesses do, there'll be some people who don't necessarily think the way that you do. Talk to us about the effects on somebody who wants to do the right thing like you and whether it would make a difference to them. And then maybe the people who are less inclined to, to be the kind of to practice the kind of business that you are. The inverted commas, good guys that already get this and build their business based on serving something beyond shareholders um, make more money. And I, there's evidence I, I can show you, for example, B corporations in 2017, 2018 grew 28 times faster than the British economy grew. Some of them are small companies and fast growing at that stage of life, but it includes some big public companies as well. So the economics are there for um, the rationale for that. They're going to do the right thing anyway. If they find B Corp and uh, the B Corp movement and they can accredit, that movement will grow. But the guys that aren't doing that, the companies that aren't um, promoting the welfare of, of a broader set of stakeholders, they frankly should be made to do it if, if, if 
that's the sort of society that we want to live in. One of my favorite clips um, has been of Elizabeth Warren when she was doing her last campaign for uh, the presidential run. And she spoke about this interdependence of how all this ecosystem is connected because she said, nobody got rich or, or made an impact on their own. Me as an entrepreneur can go off and have this great idea. We create a product, we create a factory or a big company comes and makes a factory and they think that they've got the thing that's going to change the world. But it won't change anything unless the products in that factory can get out to the market on a road. And that road's been built by you and I and everybody's listening. The entrepreneur or the business didn't make that road. And they're employing people that have been educated. Who's paid for them? Well, the rest of us have. And the police service and the fire service and everybody else that makes sure that business is safe and can thrive. Take a hunk of those profits, she said. You know, you should be rewarded for the risk that you take. But so many other people have taken risks. And if we can build an economy where the vast majority of people would tick that and say, yes, I would vote for that, we should have a government that's prepared to... Um, take this what, Section 172, this Better Business Act, uh, and reframe, be bold enough to reframe what, what really a business is for, what an economy is for in a 21st century society. Well, look, uh, Paul Lindley, um, I think that's a very good note to uh, end on that you and others are, are definitely uh, leading a movement to, to change society. And it's incredibly impressive what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ed. Jeff, thank you. Now, to talk about the broader context uh, following that conversation with Paul, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Lenore Palladino, who's assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Lenore, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Can you start by explaining what the problems are with the, the so-called shareholder primacy approach in the United States. So shareholder primacy is this idea that the entire purpose of corporate activity is to raise share prices, to make as much money for shareholders as possible. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that this is a relatively recent development in terms of it being the main uh, focus inside corporate boardrooms. The problems with it are many. One is simply that there's a share ownership in the U.S. is actually concentrated quite deeply in a very small number of white, wealthy households. So if we're talking about the purpose of corporate activity being to make as much money as possible for shareholders, it's really making as much money as possible for a very small group of people. On the other hand, what that has meant over the last several decades is it's a justification for really putting as much of a squeeze on the workforce as possible in order to come up with that money. So in other words, it gives um, corporate leadership an excuse to say, well, we simply can't pay more in wages or provide, say, pay leave or uh, you know, better benefits to our uh, hundreds of thousands of people in our workforce because all the money needs to go to shareholders. Um, and then one more problem is its contribution to climate change. So we have this term in economics of this idea of negative externalities. If the entire purpose of a corporation is to earn as much money as possible for shareholders, and one of the consequences of that is creating lots and lots of pollution or, or problems for the climate, well, then that's justified by shareholder primacy. And obviously, we're living with the results of that uh, justification today. And we've talked to Paul Lindley about what was entrenching shareholder primacy in the UK. Is there a law in the US that puts the shareholder at the top of the at the top of the pile? In the US, corporate law is state law. We other um, areas of law, labor law, securities law are at the our federal level. Corporate law is at the state level, which means all 50 states can have their own set of laws. In practice, Delaware, even though it only has about 800 and 50,000 people, um, is the primary location for uh, corporate registration that has a long history um, in terms of reasons why. But that means that Delaware's corporate law actually reigns supreme in the U.S. and in many ways globally. In the Delaware corporate law, um, there is language that says that at least in certain kinds of transactions, um, shareholder value must be the primary responsibility of the board of directors. And you've linked shareholder primacy to the growth of something called stock buybacks or share buybacks. Tell us what they are 
and why they're a problem. So stock buybacks are simply when a publicly traded corporation goes to the open market and repurchases their own shares for the purpose of raising the remaining shares in value, increasing their price. I think they're problematic in a couple different ways. One is that you could really argue that they manipulate the market price of the company's stock. In fact, that's the justification for them most of the time. And in our securities laws, we generally think that companies are not supposed to manipulate the market price for their stock. So why is this an exception? That's one problem. A second problem that I've looked at a lot in my research is that because of the disclosure regime and technical rules around them in the United States, the corporate leaders who decide to do them don't actually have to report that they're doing so until many weeks or months afterwards. So they have the opportunity to conduct a stock buyback, raise the share prices of their of their shares, and then sell their own personal shareholdings in order to take advantage of that bump in price. Many people say immediately when I say this to them, that sounds like insider trading. And I would say, yes, it does. But it doesn't fall currently uh, in our legal um, structure around stock buybacks. It doesn't fall under the insider trading um, you know, set of restrictions. I'll just mention a third problem yeah. briefly, kind of the more substantive one. If you look at the rise in the actual dollar amounts, in, in my research, I can tell you that in the U.S., Companies spent $6.3 trillion with a T on them in the decade of the 2010s. Um, that's a tremendous amount of money. I don't know what it is in pounds, but it's a tremendous amount of money. Trillions. Yes, trillions exactly. of pounds. It, in, on average, that's been about half of their net profits, which when you combine that with dividends, in many cases across sectors, it's 100% of their net income. Um, this is... I think a major driver of why we're, our investment is going down. These things have really been a kind of juice um, that have driven up the stock market, but don't contribute anything to the actual innovative potential of our companies or to the majority of American workers. I mean, it's really significant, isn't it, that $6 trillion figure, because that's money that's not going to workers in wages, not going to investment. We have a similar problem here, which is that over the last decade, the amount of money um, raised from the stock market from issuing shares is actually less than the amount of money spent on share buybacks. Um, but I think that's a really significant point. Now, let's talk, Lenore, about the alternative, which is what some people call stakeholder, the stakeholder approach. And, and you've got a number of things that you think are sort of necessary reforms that are necessary to, 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 to sort of produce a different approach. Do you want to, would you mind telling us what, what they are? Sure. I think most generally, we need to rebalance power within the corporation and between the corporation and the broader society. So this has so many aspects we could spend hours on. Um, I think in terms of the broader society, we need to reinstitute um, the idea that corporations are uh, publicly chartered. They need public permission to operate because there's so much benefit um to them versus other kinds of businesses. And so in exchange for that public permission to operate, they should serve the public benefit. So a great example of this is the new benefit corporation form that allows a company to choose for itself to, to distinctly not adhere to shareholder primacy, to say that the role of the board of directors is to consider the interests of multiple stakeholder groups. This doesn't tie them to one outcome or the other, but it's an incredibly important change to actually allow uh, governance to take place between multiple stakeholders, significantly who all contribute to the value that's created by the corporation, right? You can't operate a corporation without workers. You can't conduct a corporation without customers or suppliers. Um, and then I think also we in the U.S. have a lot to learn from the model in, in Germany and, and much of Europe around worker representation on corporate boards. And then the final thing I'll just say is, of course, there's lots of prohibitions that we should put in place immediately on things like stock buybacks, on lots of uh, issues around taxes. I think that's where we'll see probably initial energy um, from the next um, administration. But I think we need to look more structurally in order to move away uh, from shareholder primacy. Can I ask you about a, a potential, potentially broader picture? What happens uh, as as we see more 
Corp. So how 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 does business and the balance of power uh, towards shareholders, how, how does it all start to change? What are the knock-on effects? I think what's really great about benefit corporations is that they're a proven example that a company can operate um, when its leadership considers the interests of multiple stakeholders and be a successful business. So, so it takes away the argument that at the, you know, basic level that the only way a company can be successful is by, uh, focusing on that exclusive share price, which I think has been, uh, really at the root of, of a lot of the misunderstanding around shareholder primacy, that it's the only way to operate. And is there some kind of tipping point where, you know, you, you, you get enough businesses changing to this model that it then has a knock-on effect on business more widely? I think what's been great in the last year and a half is we've seen the business roundtable, the collection of um, the largest American businesses, uh, sort of their trade association. We've seen plenty of corporate leaders all speaking out and talking about the need to transition to stakeholder capitalism. So they don't have to do this. I think it's um, really interesting and important that they have started to um, recognize the failures from the last couple of decades. I think the transition comes from public policy. I'm biased. I'm a public policy person. But I believe that we um, need to not only have leadership from those uh uh, businesses and corporate leaders who may choose to move in this direction, but we need public policy in order to establish a level playing field, and that's the only way that we'll really see a tipping point. And we and I can't resist but asking you: We obviously are uh, two weeks into or so to President Elect Biden. Um, is this something that is going to be a pro- potential priority for the Biden administration? Do you see this moving forward, or do you think? There'll be other things that just take its place. He doesn't. He may not have a majority in the Senate. I mean, in other words, what are the prospects? What, what at the federal level? What's the chances of big change here? I think it's incredibly exciting. I think he has clearly indicated. Um, just you know, I think two days ago he gave a speech where he said, "Look, I'm a union guy. That's going to mean corporations need to understand that balancing power actually." improves economic growth. So he understands that. And um, I think that he has surrounded himself and hopefully with announcements over the coming days and weeks, he's surrounding himself with a new generation of economic policymakers who understand the harms of shareholder primacy. And then the last thing I'll say that you might not that might not be uh, clear to your listeners is that this is actually a bipartisan issue in the U.S., It's not something that all conservatives support, but there's quite a number of conservative politicians, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, and others who have spoken out about the problems of shareholder primacy and stock buybacks. You know, they recognize, as everyone should recognize, this is not just about um, increasing the wealth of, of the rich, but it's also about hurting the innovative potential of the American business and American economy. And that's really a bipartisan issue. Uh, Lenore Palladino, it's been great to talk to you. You've laid out the case incredibly clearly. Um, we will be following events in the US, obviously, with gr- a great deal of interest. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. It's an honour to be here. Thanks so much. So what did you think? I was really struck by the thing Paul said about how there aren't people and business people. There are just people and how the current system of maximising profits for shareholders leads to people acting against their personal values. And it's really exciting, I think, to hear about a different way of doing things that can be enshrined in the actual structure of companies that would benefit the people working there, society, and probably ultimately the shareholders, because it would mean less of a focus on short-termism. I mean, it is really exciting. And I, I mean, a number of things, I think, are really interesting about the conversation. One is... This is a conversation being led by lots of business people. You know, I thought Paul was incredibly impressive and eloquent. Um, there are lots of business people like him who are at the vanguard uh, of this movement. And I think that is really uh, significant that it's that it's people who've, who've, who've run companies who are sort of arguing for this change. So I suppose the other thing I'd say is, you know, there's a broader context which Lenore was getting into about this, which is, I think it is about a different way of doing things. And I suspect that's about 
there's quite a lot that goes into that and shapes that. And I think Paul was also indicating that, you know, it's about it's not just about the law. It's about the financial system. It's about a whole range of things that are that go into this question. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've got thoughts on this week's episode on business, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com or indeed, if you've got ideas for future episodes, we read all the emails. We feel gratified by praise. We steel ourselves against any criticism, but we always take it on board. Um, This one comes from Jeff Cowton. I hope I pronounced that right. And the subject is polarisation and William Wordsworth. Hi, Ed and Jeff. You said that you loved emails from listeners and you read every one. Briefly, I write as curator of Wordsworth Dove Cottage and Museum. Interesting. The podcast on polarisation was inspirational and offered practical ways forward. I love the conversation the approach has taken. I just want to share with you something Wordsworth wrote on the subject. We think of him as a nature poet, but he was deeply concerned with seeing each person as an individual. When he was writing, ordinary people, in inverted commas, were objectified as a body to be feared by the establishment fear of the mob. Wordsworth would have us look beyond our immediate circle of associates and see people as part of a shared humanity. We have, all of us, one human heart. In 1802, he received a letter from a young student who complained that the subjects Wordsworth had chosen to write about weren't fit ones for poetry. One poem in particular displeased Wilson, its subject a disabled boy and his mother's love for him. Wordsworth argues back that the individual did not find pleasure in this poem because its subject is beyond his own lived experience. He argued that they lacked a comprehensiveness of thinking and feeling. People in our rank in life are perpetually falling into one sad mistake, namely that of supposing that human nature and the persons they associate with are one and the same thing. These persons are, it is true, a part of human nature, but we err lamentably if we suppose them to be fair representatives of the vast mass of human existence. We take Wordsworth's conviction here that we must look beyond people with whom we normally associate as a starting point for our work as a museum. Very best wishes, Jeff. Ah, oh, isn't that nice? It is, and it sort of leads into the next email. And I do want to say that we received quite a lot of email after last week's episode, and everybody was of of a mind. You know, it was all very similar uh, in terms of what people thought, and this this is uh, indicative of this too. This one came from Diana Fitch, who says, uh, "I really enjoyed the angle of the podcast this week." However. I feel you came across as mystified by the Danish MP's approach to hate mail. Her willingness to enter homes does seem risky, but conversation and listening have to be part of solving this other culture. I've just belatedly caught up on Grayson Perry's Big American Road Trip. I recommend watching an episode or two uh, to see how he engaged with such diverse others and what we could all learn from it, or maybe have him on the programme. You can uh, find the three-part series, which was filmed last summer, uh, on all four. It is it is interesting, isn't it, that, you know, we were both slightly anxious, weren't we, about some of the... Uh, 
not not we've i was thought uslan was very admirable but we were thinking you know is there really that much to be gained i mean she she specifically said very early on she yeah yeah she yeah yeah change these people's minds but i also think it's sort of i guess i was thinking that there was a distinction between someone you disagree with profoundly mm. and someone who's a sort of racist yes um because you know somebody's got very different views from me about a certain issue is one thing you know make your own and, sandwich shops for example well, indeed exactly but you know somebody who, who who's sort of you know has appalling sort of prejudices against people because of the color of their skin or their religion or whatever feels like it's in a different category for me and Uslim, it felt incredibly sort of well tolerant i think of you know what I mean? Yeah, but, I just but I, if our, our listeners did a better job of un- understanding the sort of the the difference than we did, then email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or search for our Facebook page Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. And for our cheerful person this week, we're delighted to welcome onto the podcast Anne Miller, who is a QI elf. Is that what it says on your LinkedIn page, Anne? Yeah, yeah, and my passport. Good, yeah. good. And uh, a co-author of a, a brilliant book called Funny You Should Ask. Um, and we want to jump straight in because a hotly debated topic has hotly been... Hotly debated. Well, Indeed, yeah. Hotly, no, not no the right intended. choice of words, was it? Um, <laughs> so, Coldly debated. Ed has been trying to get a debate going about why certain food tastes better cold. Sausages, in fact. Okay, and I know this is something you cover uh, with with pizza. So, you talk to us about why pizza tastes better cold the next day, and then we can see if we can extrapolate and see if that applies to sausages. Sure, I do think it is worth prefacing it with different people have different taste buds, and someone might like the hot, melty mozzarella, but some people might like the sweeter. I think the idea is that if you leave your pizza out overnight, the the, um, the tomato sauce acts as sort of base, so it keeps your base crispy, um, but it lets the cheese sort of get sweeter, and the toppings are sort of sat there. More, I guess it's kind of like how when you cook a stew, the longer you boil it, the more intense the flavors get. So they have sort of room to breathe, and the cheese will be sweeter. The dough will stay crisp; it'll be equally delicious. And cheese is sweeter. We're straight on to the top big issues here. Cheese is sweeter a day later, is it? Cheese that's left out for a few hours becomes sweeter because some of the milky lactose becomes fruity ah, fructose. The lactose so it's a process. becomes fructose. Wow. And it becomes sweeter. And then with pepperoni, if you have pepperoni pizza, that becomes tastier because the protein in the meat starts to break down and then the garlic and herbs have more time to infuse. I well, feel we're this getting is somewhere, interesting Jeff. because the pepperoni, I mean, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, yeah. so, so I, I have less knowledge of this than you, but the, the pepperoni is a sausage, essentially. And your hypothesis yeah. is that sausages taste better cold in the morning. Now, why is it that dads tell bad jokes, Anne? Well, I mean... Some people think they're funny, but the, um, our answer in the book is that there's a theory that it's to do with helping children's language development. So often a dad joke is something that you repeat the same time. So, for example, every time the ice cream van goes by with its um, jingle playing, you say, oh, they won't play it. They won't sell any ice cream going at that speed. Things like that. And the idea is that it's sort of it's repetitive. It's and also kids when they're very small will laugh at almost anything. So you get a good reaction, and when you get a good reaction, you want that reaction again. And then you'll hit a point where your child is like, "I know that joke," but you still think, "Oh, they're going to laugh loads." And so it sort of gradually becomes but old material. You know, it's interesting because I think having uh, kids who are ten and eleven, that mm. the dad joke resistance is the canary in the coal mine for teenagerhood. Because they're clearly nice. not teenagers, but they are quite eye-rolly about my jokes. Do you have okay. Do you have recurring dad jokes, Ed? No, I think I just have bad dad jokes. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of a bad dad joke, but I can't really think of them. Let me ask you about how you go about answering some of these questions. So, so the yeah. the, the one that sticks out is. Um, who would win in a swimming race, a human, a fish, or a mermaid? How yeah. do you go about determining the water speed of a mermaid? 
It's a very good question. I think the ultimate answer to that one is the mermaid would win, but the mermaid does have to exist in order to win the race. So, you know, we answer them as best we can. And I think what's so, so this whole book is based on the segment we do on the um, Radio 2 Breakfast Show, answering questions people send in. And what's so exciting for us is that when you get a question, you generally have no way of knowing whether it's a really quick one hit, this is the answer, or whether it's going to take you six years and you're going to want to start doing a PhD by the end of it. So there's one in the book, which is why do we say blowing raspberries for that sort of fart noise we make and the small children find hilarious. And that's really straightforward. It's rhyming slang. A raspberry tart was a fart. So it's blowing a raspberry. You're blowing a fart noise. Or there's one hotly debated sometimes in some households is should toilet paper hang over or under? And it's over. That's how it was in the original patent. So pretty to the source. That's how it was meant to be. If you want a personal preference, that's fine. But officially, that's the answer. And then there are some that just... We had one about um, Canadian airport codes. You know, all airports like Heathrow is LHR. All the Canadian international airports all start with a Y. And someone asked us why this is. And I was like, oh, so interesting. Let me find out. We do not know. We have tried our best. And our favourite theory is that the idea is that when the airline codes changed from two to three digits, a lot of places looked for... Airports have weather stations. So, for example, in Vancouver is YVR. So it's, if you look at the VR, it makes more sense. So the idea was it's Vancouver and yes, it has a weather station. YVR is its code. Halifax is YHZ. Yes, Halifax. Three-line code. Uh, Toronto is YYZ. So it ruins that <laughs> system. We're not quite sure why they picked that. So we actually emailed um, the International Air Transport Association, IATA, and said, hey, why are Canadian airports got Ys? We thought maybe it's like a zoning thing or it was to let people know why, you know, like with a postcode, okay, why it's that bit of the globe. Let's Then we'll narrow in further. And they said, oh, um, the airport's just requested it and we approved it. We don't know why they why they asked for it. So we emailed Toronto Airport and said, OK, um, why do you have a Y in your name? And they said, oh, we get asked that a lot. We usually send people to IATA. So we've concluded that rather than wasting the time of every airport in Canada, we are like, we don't know. Here are some theories. Here's what we think it could be. If you work for a Canadian airport or for IATA, please, and we've put an email address, email canadianairports at qi.com and we would love to hear from you. Well, look, we have international listeners, and we are we're going to put a shout out. If anybody knows please what, do. why, why... Why uh, is there a why? <laughs> why is there a why for Canadian airports? We would, we, Anne would be forever in your debt. Do you have your own elf superpower? Is there an area of expertise that if a question comes in on a certain subject, they think Anne's, Anne's mm. the person for this? Oh, so we, I think we all have sort of areas we particularly like rather than, um, especially, I really like silly spy facts. So my favourite QI fact of all time is that there is a Starbucks inside the CIA's headquarters in America, but they're not allowed to write names on the cups. So it just <laughs> makes me happy. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it was in. It was such a good. There's a big long read, deep dive into this coffee shop, and there's so many details. Like they, um, they can't write Starbucks CIA on the receipt because that would kind of blow someone's cover if they go home and it's in their pocket. So it's called store number one. Um, and the Starbucks is really important because you know if we all worked for the CIA, we might never know. And if I see you in the coffee shop, I might be like, oh, hi, but I can't say to you, see you at the CIA tomorrow because that would, you know, against protocol. Um, and uh, the the I mean this this is a book I think that is destined to be in many Christmas stockings. Um, it's it's going to be one of these books that people will sit around on Christmas Day um, reading out facts from. Um, it's it's Definitely. fantastic. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It's called Funny You Should Ask. And um, what's what's happening with QI? Is it on telly at the moment? Are you between series? Are you doing it socially distanced? What's what's happening? We are um, remotely researching the S series. So each series of QI is themed around a letter and we're currently on S. So we're reading all about Shakespeare and Spain and um, stencils and well, you can na- You can now throw sausages into the mix. You know what? Maybe I will look into sausages and find out if there is a reason why they taste better the next day. Well, look, Anne Miller, everyone should get your book. Um, they'll have great entertainment uh, at Christmas and uh, other times of the year. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
We're in the outro. We are. We want to give a big shout out. Yes. To our friends at Left Foot Forward. Yes. They, uh, they, they very kindly got in touch and said, would you like us to share some of the stuff from your podcast yes. with our subscribers? And, um, and, and that's what they're doing. So we wanted to salute them to say how great it is to be, uh, to be working with them. And also, Ed, in, in, um, you know, for, for, to ensure balance. Bipartisan style. Yes, you, you have a proposal. If Right Foot Forward wants to promote our podcast as well, we'd be very happy to do so, wouldn't we? Yeah, we don't want to be a monoped. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever heard of monoped before. Is that a real word? <laughs> I, th- I think it might be a, a Monty Python word rather than a real word. I don't want to tempt fate with monos and buys and all that, but um, it's possible that next week I will be the proud owner of an electric bicycle. By this time next week. Oh. Yep. It's on its way. This is so exciting. Um, tell, tell us what you went for. I went for the racing green in the end because the blue had, had was sold out. Um, and actually green is probably better for me than blue. Um, the the, 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 the sort of one slight anxiety I've got is, Justine did say to me, it's possible that it will come non-assembled. And the thought of me having to assemble anything is kind of quite scary. But assembling a bicycle, I mean, I could end up really in sort of quite <laughs> quite bad situation uh but i'm t- i'm reassured i'm reassured i'm reassured that it's going to come assembled pretty much shall we uh, shall we thank our guests then uh, i'd like to thank our guests paul lindley and lenore paladino and thank you to the uh, wonderful Anne miller the book is funny you should ask emma caution produces our podcast joel piss all, all this background and research you hear every week in these guests, it's all down to Joel, Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, James Deacon made the idents, Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been very popular with adulterers. He's been Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>